Hi, everyone. Welcome to Santa Clara Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Ishan Call. Our guest today is very special to me, as he was the person who introduced me to the world of venture capital. It's my pleasure to introduce the founder and managing partner at Moneta Ventures, Lokesh Sakaria. Thank you for taking the time to come on our show today. Thank you, Ishan, for having me. And it's, uh, uh, I've been on multiple panels before, but never uh, with somebody that I truly care about. So, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for coming on again. Um, I just like to start off with a little bit about you. Um, you know, what was the path that you took to reach the VC industry? Sure, absolutely. And um, so, um, you know, when I was in uh, at UC Berkeley uh, as an undergraduate, I always had, always had uh, aspirations to be um, in uh, investment banking or private equity. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't have the grades uh, that allowed me to interview uh, for those positions. Uh, so, uh, you know, so eventually I uh, started out, uh, worked for a big four um, and uh, uh, in the management consulting side um, and then uh, worked for an IT services company. Um, and then um, working for this IT services company, I realized uh, that, you know, I had a big entrepreneurial spirit and I really wanted to kind of be involved in, in entrepreneurship in different ways um, and got that opportunity at that company. The company was a uh, rapid aim. Um, and I joined them when they were about 25 million uh, in revenue. Um, and uh, since um, joining and just, you know, uh, going through that experience, uh, you know, I really felt like I could do something with entrepreneurship. So started my own company um, called Sparta Consulting. That went well. Uh, got a great exit out for a lot of our employees and investors. Uh, and then I said, well, you know what, I have the dollars now and maybe this is the time to do a VC firm and come back to my aspirations uh, that I had in college. Um, so uh, that's my, uh, you know, circuitous path to uh, investing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, most definitely. I, lo I, lo I always love hearing these stories about how people got into the VC industry. You know, it's always always a different path and it always comes from such different places, you know, so um definitely interesting to hear. I love that you went, you know, the management consulting route and then ended up here, you know, a bunch of people that you hear go from like the investment banking round and end up in like growth equity and then come down to VC. So it's definitely yeah. a little bit of a different route. Um, do you think the founding experience you had with Sparta Consulting um, helped transition you into the VC industry? You know, after Sparta Consulting was sold and I wanted to get into the venture capital space, I uh, ended up taking a class around um, uh, venture capital um, and it was an executive management type class um, and really enjoyed it. Uh, so thought a lot about it and said, you know what, um, if, since we don't have the experience investing like other VCs, the chances are we are gonna pick worse than average companies, right? Mm -hmm. But we had a lot more entrepreneurial experience as a team uh, than most VCs do. So we felt like if we could operationally get involved with a lot of the companies we invest in, um, we could have better than average outcomes. Um, and that's really what kind of convinced us to be in the VC space. Uh, that, you know, at the end of the day, we can have better outcomes because over time, even though we might not necessarily pick the best companies, we will be able to help those companies 
um, in better than average ways um, to you know get to good outcomes. Definitely, yeah. I, I love the focus on the um, value add side of it. Definitely. Uh, so, do you believe it is necessary to have operating experience to enter the VC industry? Um, no, I don't think so. But I do think you have to go through one of two paths. Uh, one is you join a VC firm as an analyst um, and get a lot of experience investing and seeing other people who are more experienced than you doing it, uh, learning for, from those deals, and then eventually you become a good VC that way. Um, or you have operating experience, you're a successful entrepreneur, you've done well, um, and now you know you use some of that experience to become a VC. Um, I think both those paths work, um, uh, you know, but it has to be one of those two paths. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so one of the questions that uh, a lot of people in um, in the club that we have actually asked this a lot is, what does like a normal day in your life look like? Yeah. The you know, it's amazing. Um, that's probably the most exciting part of being a VC. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I have, you know, now done this for um, six years. And, you know, the great part about it is you see so many different companies, mm -hmm. right? So many different ideas. You meet so many different people. Um, so chances of seeing a pattern, uh, you know, or uh, some sort of a routine, are low right mm -hmm. so you do see a lot of different opportunities but really when it comes down to it you yeah. do five things you raise funds for your uh, fund mm -hmm. number two you look for companies to invest in do your due diligence and invest in those companies mm -hmm. number three you help scale those companies help those companies get further funding uh, operationally help them number four help exit those companies Mm -hmm. right um, and number five you operationally support that entire journey okay. right so really it's those five pillars when you look at a typical week for us um, that's how it breaks out there are a lot of sessions where we're doing for screening the companies um, you know helping the companies being part of board meetings um, mm -hmm. You know, and then operationally, you know, if there are any challenges or anything else that we need to overcome, we're doing that. And then every um, two to three years, you know, we are fundraising. Uh, yep. And so that year, you know, you add on another layer of fundraising activities um, mm -hmm. that happen. Um, so, you know, that decides what the day looks like typically uh, mm -hmm. for us. Okay, definitely. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. That's one of the main reasons that VC is so attractive to me. It's like, it's constantly changing, constantly moving. There's just so many ideas out there. Every day is very different. And, and you know, and there's so much uh, fun in terms of seeing certain things uh, emerge mm -hmm. uh, over time. Yeah. You start seeing, um, you know, uh, what we have discovered in seven years is at this point, we can't predict the ones companies that will be successful, right? But we can certainly, we have better shots at predicting the ones that will fail. Yeah. Right. So yeah. if you can somehow minimize those, uh -huh. uh, right, if you can minimize your poor investments, uh, then, you know, over time, 
you are bound to find more successes uh, among the yeah. ones that you didn't make the mistakes in. <laughs> right? yeah, so, yeah. Uh, as a yeah. concept, that works out well. Definitely. I completely agree with you there. Yeah. Um, so with all the changes coming around with COVID, um, how has Manera Ventures maneuvered um, the changes in the ecosystem? Yeah, um, great question. And um, I think what we found is that for significant portion of our uh, portfolio, right? So when you divide it into um, the portfolio into companies that were severely impacted by it, uh, right? In terms of impact of COVID on the portfolio company, when you look at it that way, you see three categories emerge. One category is companies that kind of benefited from COVID, right? So we have several investments in telemedicine um, and you know that's seen significant growth. We have several investments in educational tech. Um, and as people are working from home, more and more people are upgrading their skills. Um, and so from an ed tech standpoint, we're seeing these companies kind of grow and scale. Um, at the, so that's one end of the spectrum. The majority of the companies are in the middle, uh, which is they had a, a small period where, you know, everybody, uh, most of their prospects were not looking at new things, right? And so they had a slowdown in terms of the enterprise to enterprise sale, but now uh, that's picked up again. Uh, right, so that's the middle category, and then there's a small group of companies that were severely impacted by COVID. Um, we had one portfolio company, for example, that catered to college students while they were in college, uh, right? Um, so the uh, you know, with nobody in college uh, or very few uh, students in college, that business got impacted. Uh, Right, so so there were some like that um, that had a direct hit, um, but um, I would say that majority of the portfolio companies ended up doing reasonably well. Um, and so for us, what we did during this period is we said we'll slow down new investments, and we will look at how much more of our capital we need to use for our existing companies as follow-on money, um, and then by the end of this year, once we have a better sense of where the market's headed long-term, um, then, you know, at that point, we will start deploying again and looking at newer opportunities. Most definitely, yeah. I agree with you there. It's, be it's better right now just to slow down yeah. and focus on the companies you've already invested in. Just, you know, spend your time on those, making sure that they um, have the support that they need, especially during this time. Exactly right. And, and generally what I've seen, Ishan, is that... Um, the, the there's a slowdown in the angel activity mm -hmm. uh, for probably the same reasons uh, mm -hmm. right and so at some point that will tell on the ecosystem uh, definitely right? yeah. mm -hmm. um so a question about Manetta ventures now um why did you guys decide to focus on like a specific location you know like sacramento northern california um, instead of focusing on like a specific industry. No, that, and when we were looking at becoming DCs, um, there was a lot of people said, you know, you probably want to focus on a specific segment of the industry. And both approaches have advantages and disadvantages, right? So when you focus on a specific sector, uh, the one advantage is over time, you start knowing uh, all the key players in that sector, right? Uh, so from an exit standpoint, from, you know, who else can co-invest with you and all of those perspectives. Um, but at the same time, the, you know, what you expose yourself to is, 
the market risk with that sector, right? So imagine, uh, you know, uh, a VC that focused on the fitness vertical uh, right now, right? With, you know, all the gyms and uh, closed, uh, where do they go from there? Uh, imagine a VC focused on, um, you know, some specific aspect like that that got hurt by this, uh, by the COVID uh, uh, impact, right? So you could have, you know, there's a lot more risks associated with that. The other thing um, that's there is that when you have portfolio companies spread all over the globe um, in that, you know, industry sector, the ability to spend significant amount of time with those companies gets impacted, right? Um, so for us, you know, we love to spend time with our uh, portfolio companies and, you know, just us being around um, and learning more about the business, et cetera. So that part of it is really facilitated by having a geographic focus. Um, and then the last thing I will say, why we specifically chose to do this in Sacramento and Austin was that we felt that these were geographies that were underserved. A uh, company in Sacramento might not have any. Uh, so the ability to uh, cherry pick the investments we make to be able to support companies which otherwise would not have funding um, is really special and really helps the ecosystem. Um, and because of that, what it did was it also led to a significant number of high net worth individuals in Sacramento and local banks that ended up investing in us um, because they loved our geographic focus. Uh, and I think they would be less inclined to invest in Manada Ventures, um, you know, if our focus was on specific sector within the industry, but was more nationwide uh, in that regard. Definitely. Completely agree with you there. There needs to be a focus on either the industry or the location. But in this case, the location worked out much better, especially as you were talking about the risks that are there with, you know, choosing specific industries. Like if there's a downturn and you're kind of just um, out of luck, you know, especially yeah. um, at this point in time, you know, there's multiple industries that have just been hit extremely hard. So um, yes, <laughs> in the end, it was definitely a right choice. Thank you. No, and uh, we, we certainly feel so. And, uh, uh, you know, people have uh, our vision next is to, you know, raise a much larger uh, fund mm -hmm. in 2023. And, um, and, you know, this time around, the question didn't even come from the team or anybody, whether we be more uh, industry focused or we be mm -hmm. more geography focused for us. It's now a given that we want to be geography focused. Exactly. Definitely. Um, how does your firm go about deal sourcing? So, um, you know, we have a large number of LPs um, in our fund. And what that does is it allows us to source, you know, they become a very good source of uh, opportunities too. Uh, a lot of times there are high net worth individuals or banks or others that get approached uh, for this kind of funding and they say, well, while I cannot make a direct investment, I have invested in a fund. Let me get you connected with them. Um, so that becomes a good source of deals. Um, the other is like a lot of the angel groups. We participate with the SAC angels and other angel groups uh, across California uh, to, you know, see early stage companies, right? So the angel groups are a great source of uh, leads for us. Um, Right. Um, and then uh, the incubators and accelerators, um, you know, are the other big source um, coming out there.
Most definitely. Yeah, I, I can definitely see the um, Angels being a good route, uh, especially in this area. You know, I think Sacramento Angels is very um, active. So yep. definitely in this area. Um, how, how do you go about getting larger VCs to syndicate their deals with your firm? You know, the when we started out um, in most of our companies, we would be the um, only institutional money, right? Um, and but over time, uh, we have had a lot of interest from Bay Area VCs and uh, who have wanted to do deals with us or participate on deals that, that we're leading. Um, and so uh, over time, these relationships have been built and over time, you know, we've strengthened these. Um, um, so one particular uh, VC firm that, that we think, you know, just has been an amazing partner to us is uh, Nexus uh, Partners. And, uh, you know, the, uh, so firms like that, I mean, you know, um, they, they love the fact that we are able to see some unique opportunities from a regional standpoint. Um, and we love partnering with them because they bring in a lot more capital. They bring in a lot of expertise and connects. Uh, so uh, over time, um, what I have found is, uh, that a lot of our relationships have strengthened um, and we are growing, uh, you know, uh, in those relationships. Definitely. Yeah, I can see that. It's definitely like a win-win situation. You know, you guys are getting like their capital and their expertise. And then, you know, you guys are more focused on this specific location or this um, <clears throat> specific area. So you have much better insight on what's going on in this area. So you can help them out with that as well. Exactly right. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so what are some like key metrics that you use to gauge a good startup? I think the, you know, the, the, everybody looks at, you know, how cash efficient they have been in terms of what they have done with the money raised they have raised so far. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, you want to look at the acquisition costs of uh, customers. You want to see, um, the lifetime value that, you know, these deals that they have, uh, you know, uh, you want to see how much of the revenue is recurring, right? So, you know, are they selling one-time engagements or are, are they selling recurring type of uh, uh, services and uh, products? Um, and so from a revenue standpoint, you know, you look at a lot of those. So I don't think there's anything unique in that regard, but, you know, in terms of what we look at. Uh, but for us, one of the key things is, we have a list of about 15 to 20 things that we have seen in companies that don't do well, right? And so we look for those, um, you know, and, you know, when we identify those uh, that exist, that's reason for us to walk from a deal, uh, um, right? So there are examples. Uh, I can give you a couple. Uh, the others we like to hold close to our chest. Uh, <laughs> but a couple of examples is one is, uh, you know, um, uh, this idea of parallel entrepreneurship, right? Somehow uh, some founders are like, yeah, you know, I have this and then I have this other thing going on. That's a no-no for us. Um, we feel like, um, you know, building a startup and a successful company is more than, you know, a full-time task. Um, so if you're dividing your time, um, that doesn't work. Um, the second is having no skin in the game, right? They need to have skin in the game. They, um, so uh, we look for that. Uh, in a big way in some of these deals. So there are a couple of things like that, but there is a list of about 15 
uh, that we look for and those are the no-nos for us. And that I think is kind of somewhat of a uh, uh, unique sauce in some senses to be able to say, okay, this is these are the ones that we avoid. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree with you on there. Having that skin in the game definitely um, yeah. gives you like a sense of assurance, you know, you know that they're going to be pushing the hardest to um, make their startup as successful as possible. And, and on that point, Ishan, I mean, the, one of the things that's kind of unique about us in that regard also is um, that if you look at the median industry, you have, you know, anywhere um, 1% of the fund typically is what the GP puts in. Um, the fact that we put in over 10% means that we ourselves have skin in the game. Yeah. Right? And we, that's why for us, it's a fair expectation to say we want the entrepreneur to have skin in the game. Right? Most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And th th that must be a great talking point when, when you're fundraising. I'm sure that really increases the confidence of your LPs. Absolutely does. And, uh, hmm. you know, because um, you think about how the VC, you know, the standard model is set up. People hmm. are on a 2%, 20% carry yep. model, right? So when they're getting 20% of the profits, that's fine. But guess what? Um, if let's say you have a VC fund and it's a hundred million dollar fund and you know, you've gone through your first 30 million and you know, the winners haven't come through increasingly, you will start taking riskier bets mm -hmm. uh, because your incentives are to get more than hundred million for the fund. Uh, but in our case, because 10% of the fund is our money, right? Uh, even in the downside scenario, we want to protect the downside scenario as mm -hmm. much as possible because, you know, we don't want to be losing money, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and, you know, so, so I think the alignment of incentives becomes uh, 100% uh, mm -hmm. with the LPs. Um, and so that's something that, you know, we are fortunate to be able to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know creates becomes a differentiator for us yeah no most definitely i agree with you there the alignment of incentives is very important you know the, the way that the incentives are set up are almost like um it's very interesting to see because i've been researching it a lot you know how like about 50 percent of the funds don't even return one x right so yeah. um and obviously there's a lot of risk involved in uh, vc early stage investing so um, a lot of the incentives are just to increase your assets under management as much as possible and get, you know, that increase that 2%, like get, get as much as you can out of that. And then don't really worry too much about the carry because, you know, not sure if you're going to get it as much, you know, so having that money um, like put into the fund as well from the GPs definitely um, aligns everything. Yeah, and, and that's a, the great point that you make around that, right, is, you know, you don't want the 2% to become the big part of the compensation. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. You know, you really want the VC to be more aligned with the overall fund and the LP. Yep. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Um, okay, so what, um, what do you believe determines, like, the success of a startup? I think the um, first is, you know, to me, Looking um, for a business model that is repetitive, recurring in nature, right? How do you get to that? Um, you know, the second is how do your clients really need that service or is it a beautiful 
you know, hammer that you have created and you're now looking for a nail, right? Um, so the, you know, finding uh, the need uh, and being able to address a specific need automatically takes care of so many things, right? Uh, so I think it's really important that startups spend that time. Mm, yeah, no, most definitely. Um, so what are some trends right now that are emerging that you might be keeping your eye on? I think the, um, you know, even from a COVID standpoint, there is certain things to watch out for, right? Um, I think this is not a temporary thing anymore. I think habits have changed um, permanently um, and some trends are here to stay, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, telemedicine as an example, right? Um, our portfolio companies, when they, one of our portfolio companies, when they started telemedicine was such a novel concept. Now it's almost expected, yeah. right? So if I'm taking, um, you know, my mother to the doctor, she, you know, asks me, hey, can it be a telemedicine visit, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not a, uh, <laughs> you know, so almost now we are booking out appointments in the family and saying, you know what, uh, I, you know, I would like an appointment in December. And they're like, yeah, the doctor's seeing people at that time face to face. And I'm like, yeah, but could we get a telemedicine? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, um, so there are trends that have changed uh, permanently and you know, you want to be on the lookout to see that you're not somehow blindsided by that, uh, right? How, you know, uh, rightfully are you looking at um, those trends uh, is key. Um, and each one of the business has had these little fine tuning uh, around the COVID impact, um, right? So how you develop a culture within a startup when you're not, you know, in the office physically, mm -hmm. uh, Definitely. right? So um you know so which are the companies that are doing that right um, um so you gotta look at those trends uh, you gotta look at where the world's changing to um beyond whatever you know uh, uh, thesis we had uh, or any other vc has when they start a fund um, that these trends are now definitely making an impact definitely yeah i agree with you on that i think just um COVID has just increased the um like the speed at which these trends were emerging and at the at this point you know it's kind of as you said become norm you know like uh, telemedicine um all these work from home um like different <laughs> different work from yeah. home uh applications that are out there um all these things have just become the norm now and it's um definitely interesting to see where it's going to go from here okay no exactly right mm -hmm. so um what are some qualities that, that you look for in a founder that makes you want to fund their company I think the, for me, um, being humble and likable, mm -hmm. um, uh, right? So the ability, um, you know, you like them as a person, uh, you know, uh, is important. And, you know, some level of humility in terms of being able to say, look, yeah, these are things we don't know about yet. We're still exploring it. We're still discovering this. That's okay, right? I mean, nobody's expected to have all the answers. And when our team you know, is asking you 30 questions a minute, um, you know, we don't expect you to know all those answers, but we do expect you to tell us where you don't know the answers, right? Um, and so to, to me, humility and, um, you know, the ability to get along with those founders is key. 
um, you know, you get into a marriage with them in almost in some senses because, you know, you are an investor in them for five, seven, eight years. And, um, and you know, if you don't like the person or, um, you know, that's going to be a tough, turbulent relationship. Um, so that's key things there in some senses. And then the, as I mentioned earlier, the ability to be, uh, have skin in the game, to be hungry, um, you know, is important. Uh, you know, this is not a, uh, this is a contact sport, <laughs> right? This is not a, you know, the, uh, the, you gotta be in the, you gotta be involved in it. You gotta be, you know, um, so you, uh, unless, um, you know, you are doing all those things. I mean, um, you can't do this. Uh, startup is not a thing that you do, you know, nine to five and say, oh, you know what, you know, I'm gonna create something very special here, nine to five. Um, that just doesn't happen. Most definitely, completely agree with you on that one. It's definitely, it definitely is a contact sport. I love that analogy. <laughs> um, so when it comes to founders, do you like um, when you see recurring founders or like, um, or seeing like new people coming out and founding their first company, you know, have that real, like real drive and hunger to build their first company? Which one do you really um, like more? Or is there like a preference? You know, it's interesting is um, uh, for us, the both, um, somehow or the other, we do really well with first-time founders, and then we do really well with um, people who have found, you know, been part of like three, four startups. Um, it's the middle category that we have a little bit more issues with, <laughs> um, and I think there is a theory to it. The first-time founder um, is very eager to learn, right? Is Hey, you know, I want to know more. I want to do this, you know, so they're very open to being coached. They're open to taking advice. They're open to looking at new things. And that's what I think we love about them. This, you know, the significantly experienced founder is also tremendous to work with because, you know, they don't have unrealistic expectations from you. They don't, you know, uh, they understand when you make a valid point, they know they're smart enough to realize, yep, you know, uh, that's a good point and they need to go in that direction. Um, so with both those categories, we tend to do really well. The situation where the founder has gone through one or two startups and starts feeling like, hey, look, I know, you know everything there is to know. <laughs> and so they just haven't gone through three or four to realize, no, they still don't know everything. Uh, and so there is that stage in between where you kind of, you know, uh, you can have personalities that are still forming and developing um, and they become a little bit more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I love that. There's definitely that confidence and knowledge curve, you know, where you get you get a lot of confidence, that little bit of knowledge, you know, because you don't know how much you don't know. Exactly. That's yeah. a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um, thank you so much. Now we're just going to go ahead and move into the personal questions. Sure. Um, so for the first question, um, what's your favorite book and why? Actually written by a friend of mine uh, who won a Pulitzer uh, oh. for it. Um, it's called Emperor of All Maladies and it's about cancer Um, and what's pretty amazing about that book is uh, you know who in the world would want to read like you know a 500 uh, page book on cancer Uh, but it's so engaging um, that you know it just almost feels like a story Um, yeah and uh, you know, it's so informative. It's, uh, you know, you just learn so many fascinating things, uh, you know, in that book. Uh, so that's one of my all-time 
favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I've, I've definitely found that about long books. They're either like way too long and not interesting at all or so interesting that it doesn't even feel like a long book at all. So, you know, the uh, the Emperor of All Melodies, I started reading that book because I just wanted to tell my friend that I read some part of it. Right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So my when I picked that book up, uh, you know, my thought process was I'll reach twenty twenty five pages, get some sort of a sense of where the book is, and yeah, way I can kind of sound knowledgeable with him. <laughs> uh, and you know, if you read the first twenty pages and you don't read the rest, uh, you are a special human being because you really <laughs> can't resist it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just so engaging that. Uh, you know, uh, by the time I was done with my first sitting, I was, I think I was beyond 100 pages, um, you know, uh, just at a straight stretch. Uh, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with you there. There's some, there's some books that just engage you so much that you just can't, you can't put yeah. it down. No, so true. Yeah. Um, so next question, where do you go to find new market information and like stay updated on new trends? I think we, our industry as a whole uh, does a great job of, um, you know, a lot of VCs will get on panels and things like that. And um, from a Moneta team standpoint, uh, there's six of us. And so um, what we do is that, you know, each of us participates in these industry panels where we're listening to others speak. Uh, and you can pick up these small nuggets from those sessions um, and so one of the things that we have done is we've done a good job of capturing nuggets in terms of, you know, if one of the partners attends one of the panels, they kind of write about it and say, okay, these are a few nuggets that I kind of picked up from it. Um, so that's been a great source. I mean, you really find some amazing learnings from uh, our peers uh, in the space. Um, and, uh, and then the other is, uh, you know, I have the benefit of working uh, with the particular partner of mine, uh, Vaibhavnath Gowda, um, who is just incredibly well-read and, you know, just uh, always full of wisdom. So uh, we as a team benefit tremendously from all his readings, right? So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Love that. Um, what habits do you think are most useful to develop for like a successful life or a successful career? I think the, you have to prioritize your life. Um, and have to be clearer about it. Um, I think looking back um, at, you know, 25 years of being an entrepreneur or a VC, I would say that the thing that helped me the most was always having a clear focus on the ultimate goal of what I was trying to do, right? So um, when I was at Appenheim, you know, the focus was I got to have enough dollars in the bank so that I can take risks as an entrepreneur on my next venture, right? And, um, you know, when I started Sparta Consulting, it was all about making money for my investors and my employees, you know, feeling accountable for that and ensuring that we were able to scale and grow. Um, And, you know, so there was a clear uh, outcome-based, you know, uh, journey. Um, And then at Moneta, the idea was, you know, to learn about a new space, to develop into a new space and eventually uh, become a significant player in that new space. Um, And so every time having clearly defined goals and what you're expecting out of it uh, is important. Um, You know, one of the things I heard, uh, 
we sold Sparta Consulting at uh, $38 million. Um, and, you know, the company uh, grew to be $125 million within a few more years. Uh, and a lot of people said, hey, you know, if you'd waited a few more years, you could have done so much better. But, you know, when you look at the objectives we started out with and at 38 million, you know, how many of those objectives were met was incredible, right? So to me, why would I risk uh, going for more when majority of the objectives that I had in mind when I started it were already being met, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, um, so it really helped frame that for us, uh, right? And so... Um, I think it's important for people to kind of set prioritize and, you know, it really helps them in the longer run. Definitely. No, I absolutely love that. Where, you know, you're talking about absolutely, you start out with a goal and then you can break that down into steps. You know, if you don't really have a goal, you're kind of just walking around aimlessly, don't really know exactly what's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, um, and, and, you know, the, the only other thing I would add to that is just the ability to be open to learning. I mean, Every day, I realize I learned so much from my team. I learned so much from the entrepreneurs we invest in. And it's like, you know, some places we invest in, companies we invest in, and we go, wow, I mean, I wish we had done that at Sparta when we were entrepreneurs. I mean, that's uh-huh. so, um, right? So some of the things that you learn is just fascinating. So as long as you are open and conscious about the fact that you don't know much and you have to absorb uh, from the world, yeah. uh, it always makes you a better individual going forward. Definitely. Um, if you had to start your career in a startup today, which one would you choose and why? I think I started in the services industry and uh, and that was a good way to break into startups because, um, you know, typically when you look at the services industry, um, it's a low risk, low reward uh, type of an industry, right? Um, you know, you, if you have a, a product, you know, you're a startup, you have a product, you're in the high risk, high return scenario. If the product does well, you know, you will do really well. If you're, you know, you invest a whole lot of money and then you get the product out and it doesn't do well, you know, the, you know, it can be a very high risk scenario. So the I always equated the services industry as, um, you know, you sell the tickets to the stadium and then you build the stadium, right? Uh, and so um, and so it was a lower risk way of getting into entrepreneurship. Um, so I was fortunate in that regard. So, but if, yeah, if I was to do it again, I probably wouldn't change much in my life. I mean, I, you know, uh, just a uh, phenomenal uh, uh, fun uh, in doing what I've done. Um, so I probably would go down the same path all over again. <laughs> most definitely okay yeah um so this is the last question i'm just gonna finish it on this one what's a recent deal that you have done that you're excited about and why so um we invested in a company called roar partners ror partners um we made the investment just before covid hit um roar partners was going to focus on the fitness vertical um, so their end customer uh, was the gyms, big national chains. Um, we made that investment and COVID happened. All the gyms started getting closed. Um, and 
we thought we had you know blundered uh, significantly right it was a mistake and you know unfortunately it was a mistake and we said well you know that's probably what it is what's amazing is um, it's led by a team of two founders who are incredibly experienced um, you know 20 25 30 years of entrepreneurial experience um, and in these last six months they are one of the few portfolio companies we have had which have not only met their targets but are beating it right at a time when the industry that they serve is collapsing um, so that by far is my most favorite investment uh, you know in the recent years because um, you know that just goes to show that it really depends on what you do with your firm um, where you can kind of defeat macro uh, things against you, right? Um, so the fact that their industry wasn't doing well, the fact that they were able to do the right things for those customers and grow and scale um, has been an incredible thing to watch, um, right? So I would say that's probably the, uh, at this point, it's a fascinating uh, investment for us. Yeah. Most definitely. If if you don't mind me asking, uh, did they like pivot into something else uh, or no, um, no, no? They so they continue to serve the uh, fitness gyms. Um, they okay. just have established credibility and okay. you know come up with the ideas of how they're going to help these gyms navigate through these times. And when these gyms relaunch, right? Uh, when they come up again and they have to relaunch. Um, are they prepared to do those relaunches? Are they, re, you know, ready for those campaigns from yeah. advertising marketing standpoint? Um, and so, just executing really well on that has been the key for them. Um, and uh, you know, probably in 2020 has been a surprising year in so many fronts, <laughs> but this was a good surprise in a very positive way for us. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, that concludes our podcast today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. It was great to have you on. No, thank you, Sean, for having me. I love uh, what you're doing with these podcasts. And, uh, you know, uh, from a Santa Clara standpoint, uh, you know, want to really encourage entrepreneurship there and uh, um, part of the business school and part of the uh, Center for Entrepreneurship there. Uh, I serve on both the boards and uh, um, it's amazing to hear what you're doing uh, for that community. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe to Santa Clara Ventures on Spotify and our anchor page. Please feel free to message us some questions that you want answered in our following podcast episodes. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you join us again for our next episode.